Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody again. I've had a grandbaby here this weekend. She will be here in the second service. So um, it was a good morning to see her. And it's been a fun weekend. Uh, those of you who have grandbabies, they're awesome. I don't know if they're better than the first babies. Uh, I think so. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm kind of comparing both. They're both pretty awesome. So I had a uh, pastor's meeting one time, and uh, all the pastors were going around, and they were talking about, they were introducing themselves, and then they would all talk about, well, I've got this kid, this kid, this kid. And, and I was talking about mine, of course. I went through with my kids because they were all older and out of the house. And one of the guys said, yeah, yeah, he was an older dad. He was a, a little older than me. And he was like, yeah, I've got five kids. I don't care about them. Let me tell you about my grandkids. And then went through all of that. And I, I'm kind of getting what he's talking about now. So anyway, pretty funny. So let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together, Lord. I thank you for each and every one who made it out this morning, for everybody who is listening to us online uh, right now, and for the second service, and for those who will listen later on uh, tonight and in this week. And wherever, in whatever situation uh, we find you in, now or later, or later this week, Lord, I ask that you would just open the hearts and minds of all our hearers. Lord, I ask that you would just open and prepare our hearts for the word that you have for us. Lord, I'm just a vessel, but your word will flow through. And Father, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon me, that you would speak through me, that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us, that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. Father God, I pray that you would just open Thessalonians to us. Help us to meditate on it, to think about it, to ponder it. You've got so much to teach us through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So Thessalonians is an exciting book. If you've never read Thessalonians, it really talks about the second coming. The second coming is an exciting book. Uh, it's kind of interesting that we're talking about the second coming at this phase, right? We finished our series on David, and then we're now talking about Thessalonians, which is in our lectionary. We're in a lectionary portion. You can preach from the lectionary. You can do Lectio Continua. Lectio Continua, some Anglicans are like, what the heck's Lectio Continua? Lectio Continua is what you've done if you've been in a lot of churches, if you've been in a Presbyterian church or whatever. It's continually preaching through a book. And so I might pick a book, and in some churches I might, I might go through that book, like John Piper, famous preacher, uh, um, uh, Charles Stanley or whatever, they might preach through a book for years. You might go through Romans. That's called Lectio Continua. Uh, there's also topical preaching. I might preach a series, a five-part series on marriage or four points to a better you or seven points to a better whatever, and I might do uh, that kind of series. Or we do lectionary preaching, and in the Anglican Church, we have lectionary preaching. Lectionary preaching, uh, we have a series of scriptures that are put together and we would preach on that series of scriptures, and I can pick one of those, or I can preach combined on all of them. And there's a way that Anglicans put that together. Now, that assumes you've been doing the daily office. You've been reading during the week the daily devotionals that are put together by the church. So we could pick any passage in scripture. I could start there, and you would understand it. My experience is some of y'all aren't doing your daily devotionals. So I need to explain a lot, so I don't always like to do uh, the lectionary. I like to preach a little more Lectio Continua. But this is a very fascinating passage, this Thessalonians. Well, because here's what it's talking about. When is Jesus coming back? Who knows when Jesus is coming back? Anybody? Anybody got a general idea? No? Vivian? Any? No? 
Got an idea on when Jesus is coming back? On Thursday, he rose again. All right. <laughs> okay. Thursday, maybe he rose again. And then maybe he's coming back. What day do you think he'll come back? Like on a Sunday, Saturday? Millions of years. All right. Millions of years, he might come back. Okay. Okay. Well, good. All right. So we're done. All right. Amen. All right. Communion time. So when is Jesus going to come back? It's been a speculation of people through the centuries. And, and really, for Christians forever, especially when it comes to big years, ends of centuries, uh, ends of millennia, and there's all kinds of folks who, who talk about this. And I, I kind of grew up with this. My grandfather, I called him Poppy. Everyone's got a really cool name for their grandfather, right? Um, and so whatever you called your grandfather, if you're a grandparent, you've been called by some kind of name. Uh, some have their kids make it up. Uh, some people pick their names. So whatever your grandfather name is or grandmother name is. And so I called mine Poppy. And Poppy came to Christ later in his life. My dad actually came to Christ somewhere around 30, uh, maybe a little bit before. And so he grew up not a Christian, came to Christ rather late. In fact, it's been kind of interesting watching him develop as a Christian even into his older age. And I never knew that. I never knew a time when my dad wasn't a Christian. I never knew a time when my grandfather wasn't a Christian. But my grandfather actually became a Christian after my dad did. So my dad read me the Bible when I was young and taught me the Bible through the Old Testament because those were the really cool stories and then kind of started from there. But I didn't know he was a new Christian. had no idea. My grandfather, though, got really excited about Jesus and began just willy-nilly sharing his faith to everybody. He'd walk in the malls and share his faith. He'd walk to everybody and share his faith. And when I would go visit him, he would talk to me about Jesus all the time. So I grew up with a grandfather. He would talk to me. I didn't get to see him all the time, but as much as I got to see him, he would talk to me about Jesus. And one of his favorite topics, aside from Jesus, and aside from all the people he brought to Jesus, and aside from everyone he went and shared Jesus, and whenever we were out, he would share Jesus. He just loved doing that and aside from the games, and he sang in the choir, and he taught me how to sing, all that kind of stuff. He loved that. Aside from all those things, he would talk to me about the second coming. That was kind of a hobby of his. He loved it. When's he coming back? What's Daniel about? What's Revelation about? And a lot of Christians get really excited about this topic. But here's the thing. It was a hobby when he was young. But I noticed as, it be as he got older, it became a much more serious thing. It began to transition. And this is really a thing with Christians. I notice for a lot of folks, when they're young or when they're new Christians, like I said a couple weeks ago, they're really excited about Revelation. They're really excited about the second coming. But when times get rough, people get a lot more interested in the second coming. Like on the edge of when the Nazis were going to take over Germany, all of a sudden Christians are a little bit more passionate about when the second coming is or if the Maoists are going to take over China, or in the, in the old days, whenever an army was going to invade, whenever something bad was about to happen, all of a sudden people are a lot more concerned about when Jesus is going to come again. 
And it turns out this was kind of not new. This also took place in the early church. And so my grandfather, as he grew older, began to worry more and more about when Jesus was going to come. And I thought the conversations became stranger and stranger because he began to tell me, no, Jesus, Jeff, is coming back in my lifetime. And he would tell me all these stories about all these strangers who had all these encounters with angels who were going to say Jesus, who said Jesus was coming back very soon. And I thought that was a little odd because I had read Mark 13, 32 to 33. Now, my grandfather was an independent he was in independent churches. He'd grown up a little bit Presbyterian, but he'd gone to independent churches. I'd grown up Anglican, and so we had a very different understanding. Mark 13, 32 to 33 says this, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And so I thought it odd that all these people could be prophesying and telling my grandfather and and my grandfather knew all these things about when and what hour. And they would always say, well, look, we don't know the day or the hour, but we know the year. And they would kind of dance around it. It's really going to happen soon. Jeff, I don't know when exactly, but it's going to come in my lifetime. And it seemed to me that that's not really what this passage is saying. Wait, wait, wait. We don't know the hour. We don't know the minute. We don't know the hour. We don't know the day, but I do know the week. And, and then I looked at our passage this morning, which says basically the same thing in the gospel. Matthew 25, 12 to 13, which comes right before the parable of the, ta- the talents. 12 and 13 says this, But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. Both of these passages, Jesus instructs us as believers to keep a constant vigilance as believers because you don't know and I don't know when Jesus is coming again. And this is the basic attitude that you and I are called to always have. Dad's coming again. The master's coming again. How would you behave, right, in your house? Well, we were all kids at one point. When mom is gone, right, the house tends to get messy. When she's gone for the weekend, dads, how do we let the house go? And then right before she comes, we all do that cleaning frenzy, right? Mom's been gone for a week, the house falls apart, and what happens, dads, right before mom comes back? Exactly, right? Come on, kids, we got to get it clean. That's what we all do, right? And it's worse when mom and dad are gone for a while, we got to get it in order. And if we know the time and the hour when mom and dad are going to return, that's when we behave, right? But when they're gone, we can misbehave. But Jesus says we don't know the time or the day or the hour, and so we must always be on our best behavior. And what he really means is actually we need to be about the Father's business, not just behaving. A lot of Christians took this as the wrong, in the wrong way. We need to be doing the right thing. That's what a legalist takes it as. I need, to be, I need to have this checklist. That's what a legalist does. I have a checklist, and I need to be checking the list because the Father is looking. That's not really what Jesus is saying. You're supposed to be living a particular way and doing a particular thing and just keep on doing your job. Just do your job. Don't worry about when the Father's coming. Just do your job. And he'll find you doing what you should be doing. That's how the Father should be finding you. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. 
So why was Poppy so worried about what was going to happen? Well, I didn't realize what was going on with Poppy at first, but I gradually figured it out. His interest was shifting because he feared death. It's a common thing among believers, and probably why so many folks get obsessed with the end times in the first place. But another reason Christians get obsessed with the second coming is during times of persecution. Some because of the fear of death, others because they long to escape the long, torturous existence that seems to come with mass persecution, right? Usually when these times come, we've been living in a time of softness, of plenty. We've grown soft. And I think our church, not just St. Andrews, I mean the church in general has grown soft. And we're kind of on the precipice, I think, in the U.S. and in Europe of persecution. Our church is soft, and so we get fearful, and we worry what might happen, what is coming. And if you've been listening, it is coming. Hopefully it'll avert. I doubt it. But this is the situation in which the church in Thessalonica finds itself in our passage this morning. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, and 7. You see this. And you became, uh, Paul is talking to the church, and you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. This is a, outside of Greece, the Macedonian region. So the Thessalonians had suffered for the faith. They received the faith in much persecution, much affliction. They knew what it was to suffer for Jesus. That's how they came to faith. And so they had become an example, far and wide. They knew what it was to be a believer, and they knew what it was to pay the price for Jesus. He doesn't explain how, they just know. So whatever the affliction was, they got it. And their faith shone through them. And so the apostle writes them to instruct them further in the faith and to allay their fears about the Lord's return, because they're having a lot of questions. See, what's happening at this point is the Lord's return is tarried. The early church is wondering, Jesus says, I'm going to come again. Well, this is the first generation of the church, and they're beginning to wonder, well, wait, you said the Lord is returning again, but Jose's not getting any younger, and what happens if he dies? And Jose's dad has already died, and so what's going to go on then? And Nathan is still young, but he's like wondering, he's looking over at, you know, um, at Joy, and she didn't get any younger, and what happens if she passes, right? And then what happens, someone else has already passed away, and if Jesus comes, are they already lost? And these things are happening. And so the Thessalonians are looking and saying, well, if you've died in the faith, are you gone? And if you're about to die in the faith, some of those folks are saying, well, if I die, then am I lost? And if Jesus comes again, I can't go to heaven. And this is the thing that the early church is worried about. And so Paul writes them to explain, no, you don't have to worry because there is going to be a resurrection of the dead. Jesus talks about that. Remember, they don't necessarily have the gospels in front of them. The Bible hasn't always been put together. <clears throat> there are gospels floating around, and the apostles are teaching them. And so Thessalonica probably doesn't have a gospel there. And so Paul writes them to tell them, no, Jesus has taught you that these people are going to rise from the dead. The God 
of the universe will raise you. There is an afterlife. You don't have to worry about this. When you die, you will go to heaven. Now, Christians debate on whether we die and our spirit is with God right now. A lot of Christians teach that. Or whether there's soul sleep and we fall asleep and we rise at the end when Jesus returns. There's a big debate over that. You can fall on both sides. I'll let you debate it afterwards over lunch. Put on boxing gloves and go to it. But some in the group had become so obsessed with it that they began really digging in and they had become so worried about persecution that was coming And they had become so thoughtful about this and wrestled with it so much that they began to look for Jesus returning. And they began to chill out on their roofs, cracking open a six-pack, having a party, and waiting for Jesus to come back. And they began to do this day after day, night after night, week after week, which may or may not have been so bad, yet we would all think it's bad, except that they were living off the church's coin. They were living off of other people. They had gotten lazy and slothful. They weren't doing any work. Remember, the church and the poor were supporting each other, to which Paul has to write in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, and 11. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy work, but busy bodies. This is what we call the Protestant work ethic, actually the Christian work ethic. This is, this, is, this is kind of where we view charity. We do give charity, but if you're able to work and you're will, not working willfully, then we don't give, right? If you, if you can work and there is work available, then as a Christian, you're called to work. If you're not working intentionally, then you shouldn't be eating. You shouldn't be doing it. This happened in Jamestown early on, right? It was a big thing with John Smith and all this stuff in Jamestown where they had certain people, lords and ladies, who were used and they were kind of, uh, they were elites and they didn't feel like they had to work. The peasants should work. The other people should work for me. And so early on in Jamestown, they said, dude, this ain't Britain. If you ain't going to plow, you ain't going to eat. And so he lets them starve. And it comes from this passage. Right? We help those in need but those in need also have to work. Now, if you can't work, that's a different thing, right? We do help those who can't help themselves. So he says, stop waiting on rooftops. There are clear signs before Jesus comes, but even if, it, but even if those signs were to appear, listen to what he says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, this peace... Because you read in Revelation as well, there are things that come that promise peace but are war. Then there's a false peace. Whatever this peace is, is probably the peace that a dictator brings. It's probably the peace that a false messiah brings. It's probably people say, Hitler brought a peace. Oh, there's peace. Stalin brought a peace to a certain group of people. Oh, there's peace. There's always people clamoring for peace, right? who don't want their own freedom. And they're happily, and they will happily give up their own freedom 
for somebody else to take it all away for a dictator. There's a certain false peace. And there will be people in the end times who will say, peace, peace. And that's what Revelation talks about. And they will exchange it for somebody who is very evil, who will promise this peace. So whether this peace will be short-lived or the type of peace and security that's brought in the midst of war, a brief respite, or it's a peace where they sell their souls for it, the people of God will be persecuted during this time. But the point is, Jesus' return is going to be completely shocking to all. So what he says is stop chilling on your rooftops and get on with living. And that's the point of our parable in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. A lot of people don't always understand this parable. So here the master gives three different servants a bunch of coins, and he returns at an unexpected hour. Now at that hour, the master, the master here is God, asks for an accounting of the talents he gave them. Now, the talents, of course, are a metaphor for the abilities or the blessings which the Father gives you, right, in your callings. What talents and what blessings has God given you? And he's asking then, what have you done with those talents and those blessings? That's what it's for. That's what he's saying. This is what the metaphor is. One is given many abilities and blessings. One is given fewer, and one is given even fewer. Now, the point here is not to compare uh, how... <laughs> it's not to compare the amount each one is given. A lot of us, and I hear this all the time, jump immediately, that's unfair! One's given five, one's given three, one's given one. And some people jump to that. And if you're jumping to that, that, may I suggest, says a lot more about you than about the parable. A lot of times, and especially in our society, because in our society, we're really, you hear this a lot, we're kind of pushing equal outcomes, not equal opportunity, right? We want everyone to end up in the same place, not have the same opportunity, right? Everybody needs to, we want to have this race where everyone works as hard as they can, and then everybody crosses the finish line at the same time, right? That's exactly how we want the Olympics to work. Everybody works as hard as they can, and then they run, and they run, and they run, and the fastest runner stops and lets everybody run across at the same time, right? That's kind of how we're, uh, some in our society are looking at it, uh, and we want equal opportunity, but that's not really what God is saying here, and that's not what the point is here. I think oftentimes in, in our culture, in a lot of cultures, we're perpetual two-year-olds with better vocabulary and bigger muscles, right? We, we like to talk in this way. This is something that we struggle with, but that's not what God is saying here. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying this. The point of the story is what each person does. Good, godly people seek to use that seek to use that which is given to help others and enlarge the kingdom. That's what he's saying. So he means this. We seek to use that which is given to help others and to enlarge the kingdom meaning bringing bringing salvation to the lost, caring for those in need, training the next generation, helping the elderly, or etc. The last person given talents and blessings does nothing with them, right? So this represents a person in the church who by their deeds shows they aren't really a follower of Jesus. 
The point isn't that he only had one thing or she only had one ability. The point is this, that even if they had one minuscule ability, even if they had one minuscule blessing, they wouldn't have done anything with it. They wouldn't have done a thing with it. Not only would they not have reached out or blessed somebody or used it to help somebody, they wouldn't have even stuck it in a bank and earned interest. And they would have blamed God when they got there. How many of you know how somebody who blames God for their problems? Right? We see that all the time. Like we, it's a common situation in humanity. We want God to give us the freedom to do what we want to do, and then when things don't go the way we want, we want to blame God for that situation. We want humanity to be free to do whatever, and then when it doesn't go the way we want it, it's God's fault. Right? That's what I said about being a perpetual two-year-old. Two-year-olds want what? the freedom to do whatever they want, and then it's mommy or daddy's fault if it doesn't go right. I'm a perpetual two-year-old. How about you? So they don't live for the kingdom. They don't share their faith. They don't help the poor. They don't make any difference whatsoever. And so many of the Jewish leaders who Jesus tangled with were this man, except that they had five talents and did nothing. So Matthew 28 through 30. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he who will have has an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the punishment is strong, and the description, of course, is hell. Now, this is a parable. It's not an actual description in detail of God and hell, but the point is clear. God expects us to be going about his business, not sitting on our laurels and waiting for him. So we as believers, we have work to do. Are you going about your father's business? Or are you sitting on your hands? Are you using the talents that God gave you? Are you a person with five? Are you using one or two or three? Are you a person with three? Are you using all three or one or two? Because what God is saying here is if you have one and you use it, then another will be given, and another and another and another and another. If you have three and you use it, then three more will be given. If you have five and you use them, five more will be given. If you have one and you don't use it, even what you have will be taken away. That's what he's saying. How many of you are using your talents? What are you doing with them? I see so many Christians sitting in church, learning and learning and learning, and then getting unhappy and moving to the next church. And I ask them, why? What are you doing? Are you teaching Bible studies? Are you sharing your faith? Are you reaching out to the poor? Are you doing anything with your faith at all? And number one answer I get is nothing. They're just dissatisfied with the preacher or the teacher or whatever. They've got what Amy Grant called, an old singer, fat little baby syndrome. It's like a baby who drinks mother's milk and never exercises and never grows and never whatever. They just get fat and fat and fat and eventually they die on the vine. They do nothing. 
all they do is become critics. I don't like this teaching. Well, that teaching was this. I become, and they become skeptics. They don't come to church hungry because they never use their faith. If you're using your faith, you should be crawling in that door every single Sunday, hungry and tired and desperate for teaching and fellowship and communion because you're empty and need refilling. And if you're not, what are you doing? And this is what Paul builds on in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 11. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Are you asleep? But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of, plate of faith and love, for a helmet of hope and salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. What this means for us is that we are children of God, united with him as followers of Jesus. We're called to live in hope and not fear. We don't fear death or persecution because we're called to put on the armor of God, which is faith and love. And when you trust or have faith in God, you believe in his promises, whether you can see him or not. Do you believe in those promises? You believe his word, even in dark times, when it doesn't seem to make sense to you. That's when faith is tested, when things go south. When things are ugly, you find out where your faith is. Are you crying and whining and moaning and groaning, or do you have faith? And when you are crying and moaning and whining, follow your knees and grow some faith. Trust in the Lord. Ask Him to fill you. When you dwell in His love, it changes you and how you act and how you love and how you see others. When you're dwelling in love, you see the world differently. When you're dwelling in selfishness, you see the world in a very different way. When you're dwelling in the love of God, you see it in His way. It's hard to live for yourself when you're living in love. Look, the isolation of COVID for many has hurt or damaged our faith and our love in many of us. Why? Because we've been isolated and afraid. Isolation cuts us off from others. It gives us less opportunity to love others. And I see it in those who have been isolated. Fear is the opposite of faith. Isolation keeps us from getting out and exercising our faith. And for those of you at home, have you been isolated too long? We're called to live in love and hope and not dread. The hope that comes from knowing that we are eternal. God has called us to salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we are called to encourage one another in Jesus Christ, to build each other up so that we may get out there and bring others to him, to the loving knowledge and hope of Christ Jesus. Amen.